So I thought it would be really funny to record my message. Uh, I've been abducted by aliens and I'll call you back when I'm, when I'm back on this planet. So I left these messages for the psychiatrists and I think two or three of them called me back and of those... And the one actually commented, he said, when you're done being abducted by aliens, (laughs) give me a call back. My name is Jillian Waldorf. We first met when we were 18-ish. Were you 17? I was 17. I remember that. Welcome to the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. My name is Owen Scott Muir, MD and I'm trained as a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. I went to undergrad at Amherst College, and the person I'm talking to is Dr. Jillian Waldorf. She was a classmate of mine many years ago. What started out as a goofy message on a college answering machine ended up being a little bit more prophetic than Jillian could know or want. This interview discusses her experience with early psychosis. So it doesn't come as a surprise to anybody. We're going to be talking pretty explicitly about the experience of suicidal ideation. This is a frank conversation designed to reduce stigma, and it's not designed to replace the medical advice of a professional. That's the kind of disclosure I have to have as a medical professional. And at the end of the day, this is a conversation between two friends who found themselves in the same place at the same time more than once in their life. We met at Amherst College, and did you live in my dorm freshman year? Were you James? in James? Yeah. Yeah. Which floor were you on? First floor. Okay, so I was on the fourth floor. Those were the freshman dorms at the college. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and my goal when I was applying to college was not to go to college in Pennsylvania. The summer that we went on our college tours, I wasn't even thinking about visiting Amherst because it wasn't really a school that I had heard of. I visited Smith and my mom said, we're going to be about 20 minutes from Amherst. Why don't we go and check it out? Okay, fine, but I don't think I really want to go there. I stepped onto the campus and I thought, this is where I want to go. I don't want to go to Smith or any of these other places that we visited. I want to go to Amherst. I liked it because I didn't like to be told what to do as Teenagers typically don't like to be told what to do. And I thought, if I'm going to go to a school, I don't want them to tell me what classes to take because I'd had enough of that. You get a lot of that in high school. Yeah. Well, I knew I wanted to be a psychology major. Was there something you were trying to avoid? Ah, there you go, being a therapist. I'm <laughs> You are too. I know. <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, I- there there wasn't anything I was trying to avoid except maybe doing chemistry class again. I just really wanted to do my own thing. Did you have the thought when going in that taking psychology was going to lead you to be a psychological professional? I did, actually. I had known since I was 10 that this is what I wanted to do. 10? 10. How, 10. So you're, you are a psychologist now? I have the doctoral degree. I'm probably about two years from being able to take my exam. This is a really long road. Uh, it is. It and is. you've been on it since you were 10. Yes. A- and how old are you now? 36. Back of the envelope math, that's 26 years. It is. It is 26 years. Well I, done. I, 10 made it easy. Yeah. Because I didn't have to do any complicated <laughs> subtraction. How'd you know at 10? You're going to laugh. But the reason I decided I wanted to be a psychologist is because I desperately wanted to be counselor Deanna Troy when I grew up. I did not know that such a thing as 
psychologist existed. And here is this awesome female character who has invaluable information to give to the crew and then also just sits around and listens. And I thought, damn, that's really great. I want to do that when I grow up. And my mother explained, when Jillian's got a crush on her, I was like, I can't believe you just said that because no, I don't have a crush on her. So you didn't have a crush on her? I don't think I had a crush on her. I was 10. And if I had a crush on her, it was like a 10-year-old crush. Sure, sure. It does sound like she picked up on something with you. Um that may that we may learn about later or now if you want to talk about it. <laughs> hey, there you go being a therapist again. Um, Stop that. I that's the problem. I can't, you can't turn it off at some point. Yeah. Uh, do you have that experience that's hard to turn off what you know? Very. It's very hard. Yeah. Can't turn certainly. it on and off. It's part of you now. Oh yeah. D- Diana Troy couldn't help if she was an empath. No. Just a natural career choice. Yeah. Pretty good, much. Good thing it wasn't like 20 years earlier or you'd be in communications like Ahura. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I actually met when we were in 10th grade. For the last 22 of them, I've actually known my wife. Things in my life tend to happen early on and then stay pretty consistent, which it, is good. It, I, it's funny because like I tell almost all patients, how many people are, are married to the people they were with in high school? Like mm, close to 0%, mm-hmm. uh, except for you. So we weren't actually together in high school, but we were best friends. We had some classes together. Then she sadly moved across the country after 10th grade. It was very unfair. But no, we weren't together because it wasn't okay to be out. I was aware that I wasn't into boys, but I also knew that I was a bit of a late bloomer and I was a year younger than all of my classmates, so I chalked it up to that. I probably could have been a little bit more insightful, but it was the 90s. It wasn't a time that the teenagers were really able to look at their sexuality. They could be mocked for it. Exactly, and the few kids who were out were mercilessly mocked. On a scale of like 100% happy to 0% happy, what was the high school experience like for you? 10th grade was pretty awesome. My my high school was 10, 11, and 12. So 9th grade was still junior high, and that was miserable. The 10th grade was pretty awesome. I would probably give it about a 90. That's shockingly high Yeah, for 10th grade. But 10th grade was really the year that I discovered that it was okay to be smart and quirky. And I went to this huge public high school. And so it was very easy to fit in to a group. So found my people. And 11th and 12th grade really were not as good for me. um, Because it was at that point that I started to realize that like, I was not... um, I wasn't as mentally put together as I thought that I was. And uh, at the same time, I was not sure where to take that information or who to tell it to. I'm so curious, like not as mentally put together. What did that mean for you? And you're asking me to put myself back now 20 years and think about... That's what this time machine is for. Yeah. (laughs) Why do you think we meet in this strange contraption? The way that I had really protected myself when I was in elementary school and when I was in junior high was 
to put on this front, all right, everything is great, and that I didn't care that I was getting made fun of because I was short or because I had glasses or because I was smart. Something seemed to shift when I was 15, that part of myself that said, maybe there's something really wrong with you. That part got a lot stronger. I also started to have some kind of strange perceptual things that were that were going on. So I didn't know what to make of it, but I was really just afraid to talk to anybody. The one person I did talk to was my instructor at the summer program, and I was taking a course in psychology, and I pulled him aside during study hall and I said, hey, I've been seeing these weird things and I've been hearing things, and what does this mean? And he laughed and he said, maybe you need some Haldol. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't talk about this because it's just too weird and I can't put it into words. But also I wonder if I just had approached him in the wrong context. We were taking a Frisbee break during study hall. That might not have been the best time to say, hey, do you, can you help me figure out what's going on? We've got, we've got about five minutes. Help me understand my psychosis. Yeah. Not what camp counselors are expecting. He is a graduate student in psychology. Oh, okay. He knew his stuff. Interesting. But it just, it wasn't the right, it wasn't the right setup. In the spirit of having the conversation we probably should have had 15 or 16 years ago, I'm flashing back to the high school and I'll share with you a little story that got, mm-hmm. got me where I am. It was not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was not good. Uh, there was no 90. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say, no wonder your eyes widened when I said that like 10th grade was really a 90. Yeah, like. it, it, it's interesting. I went to a Montessori school for 7th and 8th grade. I skipped 6th grade. And uh, I had struggled for years and years. I was like really dyslexic. It turns out I also have ADHD, which everyone missed. Um, going along, getting to a pretty competitive private high school. And the picking on that you describe happened, but boys are a little bit more physically assertive about that than girls are. So I was like literally hung upside down by my feet. They would hide my legs together and somehow I just played along with being hung upside down. And when you're in the position of someone who's being hung upside down, you have two options. One, fight and kick and scream and be a pain in the ass about it or accept it with good humor. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went the accept it with good humor route, which isn't great for your sense of power or agency as a young person. I'd had years of depression before this, but I started to get really sick. And and it was paired at the same time with falling in love, or what I thought was falling in love. And so I had really strong feelings for a young woman. I really had overwhelming feelings. And I thought those were overwhelming feelings of sadness because my love was unrequited. I, I don't think that's true anymore. I think mm-hmm. it's... Uh, depression's a thing and it will feel the way it feels and then you try to explain that feeling you try to build up some representation of why you feel the way you feel my answer was the girl i like doesn't love me mm. and i was very sad about that it was not good did you go to saint john's high school for miserable Fuck? no no the taft school for miserable fucks started uh, okay. by horace dutton taft the more successful according to the family brother of william howard taft uh. the fattest president Mm-hmm. I finally went to a psychiatrist after letting my mom know this was not acceptable. And she sucked. She really, like, <laughs> didn't, didn't do a very good job and put me on Zoloft. I remember like, no informed consent of any kind. And I wake up 
like the first dose of Zoloft later and I'm like twitching on the floor with energy I've never experienced before in my life. And I'm like, what is happening? How much did they put you on? I think probably 25, but okay. like I have bipolar disorder. So right. uh, unbelievably instantaneously like, oh my God, what's happening? Uh-huh. Uh, is what happened. And I ended up um, finally figuring out after a couple of weeks and some very odd behavior, I got pulled over by a cop for going like 75 and a 20. Nice. And uh, and just breaking down into tears. I got a t- he gave me the ticket anyway. Real real nice. And I finally went home and told my mom she said something is awry. And suddenly got me to someone at Yale who said uh, this is bipolar disorder. So I had this idea that I had a mental illness starting in 10th grade. I didn't know much about what it meant. I did a lot of reading. I had the outlines of what it meant. I walked into Amherst uh, with a similar idea of a major and I was hell bent on not pursuing it professionally. Mm. Mm -hmm. I was terrified of going to medical school. Mm. I intentionally took no classes that would have allowed me to go to medical school. You went to a post-bac program. I did. Yeah. (laughs) I was wrong. Yeah. (laughs) I was wrong. You can go to medical school even if you try to prevent yourself. Mm -hmm. So you're 17. I'm 18. We both land at the Ferris College Mm -hmm. in... August, August 1997. Yeah. I was fairly certain I was going to get in. I submitted a recording of myself playing a concerto with my youth orchestra. And I got this very lovely letter in January, I believe, of 97 saying, actually, we have this secret and early action thing and we pick students who we really want to have. And sorry if this makes you feel bad, Owen, but I, I didn't <laughs> clearly do, they wanted you. <laughs> eventually, yeah. I, didn't, yeah. Well, I, didn't, I actually didn't even do the early thing. I just it, did it at Brown because yeah. I was a, a hedge against my certain failure for the thing I actually wanted. I got this very lovely letter saying, we really want to have you at Amherst. And it was personalized and everything. And so I was like, yes, I'm going to Amherst. The predominant symptom that I had was that I was almost constantly hearing music throughout the day. And like, I'm a musician and my parents both have musical backgrounds and my maternal grandfather was a piano prodigy and there's like music all throughout my family and I have perfect pitch as well. Not only would I hear music very vividly, but I would also know that I was hearing it exactly as my recordings would be or or so on because the pitches were all the same. Mm -hmm. There were times that it was distracting for me in times that it was just like, all right, let's, I used to call it the jukebox in my head, but it wasn't a jukebox that I could actually control. Sometimes it would be just the stupidest things that would go around in my head and that I would just hear. And I was, I knew that it wasn't real. That's the thing. So I knew it wasn't real. And yet I couldn't quite convince myself that it wasn't, if that makes sense. On, on an intellectual level, I knew this, but But it was scary all the same. And so that was really what prompted me to ask my instructor at camp about it because we, when I was sitting in study hall and I was trying to read my textbook, I was so distracted because the room was very quiet, but I could hear something was playing very loud. And on the one hand, I knew it wasn't real. And on the other hand, I'm like, but why is this happening? And why can't I shut it off? Was it like you heard it as if it were music playing in the same room or from a distance? Or it was, was like music that was playing just outside of my left ear. Oh, so you had a headphone. Kind, yeah. And did it sound like the record version or was it ever stuff you hadn't actually ever heard before? It was always stuff that I had heard before. 
playing back perfectly. Perfectly. Inches away from your ear. Yep. Yep. Huh. Yeah. And you know how you can predict what the next song is going to be once you know an album really well? I would have that experience as well. One song would play for a while, and then the next one on the album would start up again. And we'd start up after it. And... It, as you can imagine, that was pretty distracting when I needed to do things like take a test or uh, be in study hall or something. It never really interfered when I was practicing. So if there was some actual music happening, not there at all. But if there wasn't something, it was like filling in the gaps. And did it disturb your sleep or? No, I slept pretty well. You said it was mostly yeah. music. Was it ever other things? Sometimes it was just random sounds. Sometimes it was lines from TV shows, particularly TV shows that I'd seen a lot of. I definitely watched a couple of episodes of The X-Files enough times in a row that I could call up instantly what what the line sounded like. So you, had the, so you weren't just thinking it, you were hearing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And... Some something. When did you first get the sense that this wasn't a thing that should be happening? In tenth grade, because I revealed uh, this stuff to the girl who would later become my wife, and she's a musician as well. In fact, that's what she does now. She's a pianist. She said that she would also have stuff going around in her head and that it was distracting. But I was like, no, but can you actually hear it? And she said, no, that it was more that she was thinking about it. And so you you knew then that it was Yeah, I figured that that, at that point that it was, that what I was experiencing was was not normal. And and relatively unambiguously. This is the thing that's... Psychosis, and you don't want to tell anybody, especially if you have enough of you left to know this is crazy. Yes, and because I had already read all of the books at the community college library, many of which were about people who had been locked away for whatever was diagnosed as schizophrenia, which probably wasn't even in the 60s and 70s because the library hadn't updated its collection in some time. I was really scared that if I told somebody, that was going to be me, that I was just going to be locked away. One of the things I say a lot to medical students and and junior trainees is, be careful what you say because you don't know who's listening. Mm -hmm. You don't know what their experience is like. And if you say something that's stigmatizing or an unkind joke, like, they're going to hear you, and they're going to know, oh, I don't bring this up. Mm-hmm. So if that person needs help, you won't be able to help them. Yeah. Because be- someone in the room has whatever you're talking about, axiomatically. Yes. <laughs> Especially among mental health professionals. Yeah. The other thing that had happened around the same time, so it was very, it was this very upsetting situation that my my best friend who would then later become my wife, et cetera, was going to be moving with her family all the way across the country nine months after we'd met. And my family threw a going away party for her and she and another friend then spent the night after that. And neither she nor I got a lot of sleep that night, but I was lying awake and I kept seeing these same abstract patterns. My eyes were open and yes, I was really tired and I was really emotional, but, but there was one in particular, which was a V with swirly things at the tops of the V that bothered me for a long time because then I would also see it floating across my vision 
later in that summer. That was actually the summer that I took the psychology course. It was all happening around the same time. That part I kept to myself because I'm like, whatever, it's this design. I went to visit her that Christmas. It turns out that the railing in her parents' house around the steps that go down to the, to the basement, they're wrought iron and they had exactly that same pattern. And I was like, whoa, what crack in the universe opened up? for me is really into sci-fi and X-Files and things like that. And I'm like, I'm not actually psychic, but why did, why was I able to access this one piece of information? And it felt too coincidental. And the feeling of it being too coincidental also made me feel like I was maybe a little bit crazy. What do you think of that now, by the way? I'm sure that I saw that same pattern someplace else and it just stuck. But at the time, it was really frightening. A little too real. Yeah, it was. I imagine it's what Mulder or Scully would have felt like <laughs> half of the time. Right? Mulder would have been like, clearly this is a government conspiracy, and Scully would have been like, oh, come on, Mulder, really? Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think the, the experience of, of being psychotic and the experience of being Scully are probably <laughs> relatively similar because she just got hammered with that stuff over and over again. I, Scully, how are you still such a doubter? You've seen it over mm-hmm. and over again, and, and Mulder's the kind of the less insight analog. Oh no, I've been seeing this the whole time. And we accept it in the context of the X-Files. Because the show falls apart when Scully starts believing in stuff. It really did. It was yeah. a much worse show. Yeah. And incidentally, I don't remember the last four seasons of the X-Files because I was so heavily medicated. And I actually, and there are very few things that make me grateful for the effects of this medication on my memory. And that's one of them. <laughs> That for me, The X-Files is still a great show. That is an unexpected bonus. Yep. So uh, we both get to Amherst. It's 1997. And you've been hearing stuff for a while. Mm -hmm. And I've been having moods that aren't the same intensity as other people's. I remember when we first got in touch about this, you said, remember January interterm. So we have this, <laughs> yeah. this period of time in the year where it was basically fuck around time. Mm-hmm. We were at least theoretically supposed to take some like off color class and something you wouldn't usually do. And there aren't really any like grades or expectations. And most people just hang out and drink a lot for all of January. Some people go somewhere else. Yeah. And what happened to you? That was a really frightening time in my life. Rewinding a little bit. During the first semester that we were at Amherst, things really went downhill for me. I was really excited to get there. And then once that excitement wore off, I was pretty sure I was crazy. I went to the counseling center at the intense urging of the guy that I was dating at the time. Hi, Matt. Um, And... I met with a counselor and I told him everything. I was hearing things and I was seeing things and I was having some nightmares as well. He met with me for maybe five or six sessions, if that. He said sometime just before Thanksgiving, he said, what you're going through seems to be a little bit much for the College Counseling Center to handle and I want you to go and see somebody in the community. I dragged my feet about it. And he gave me a list of psychiatrists in the community, and I didn't do it, and I didn't do it. And then he says, Jillian, I have to be a hard ass about this. You need to make this phone call. And so I was like, okay, fine. 
I was aghast that he used such a word as hard ass because I was a sweet, innocent thing and I didn't say any curse words. I'm a fucking bitch now, but I didn't say any of that stuff back then. I recall, actually. I recall. You remember that it I was, was, I was Yeah, I do, which is probably why I wasn't spending as much time with you as I probably should have, because I'm a very profane man when it is the appropriate thing yeah. to do. I was forbidden to play with some of the neighborhood children because they were profane. And this was when I was very young. I must have just internalized that you can't curse. But what was happening but, now was yeah. fucked up. It was pretty fucked up. It was pretty fucked up. I had started, I had started keeping a diary on my computer, which had a password. And so nobody else would be able to get into it and see what was going on. But it was my way of documenting what was happening for me. Meanwhile, I was going to class. I was doing fine I, academically. think that all that stuff was good. The counselor said, you, you need to make these calls. I left some messages. And as I recall, my so I had the single that was on the fourth floor of James. And the way that I got that single is that I had written, I have really bad allergies and I couldn't be housed with anybody who was going to use hairspray or nail polish or any kind of perfumey things. And I think they probably figured it was better to put me in a single than try to hook me up with a roommate. I had complete control over what my voicemail outgoing message would say. And so I thought it would be really funny to record my message. Uh, I've been abducted by aliens and I'll call you back when I'm, when I'm back on this planet. So I left these messages for the psychiatrist and I think two or three of them called me back. And of those two were not taking new patients at the time. And the one who was actually commented, he said, when you're done being abducted by aliens, <laughs> <laughs> give me a call back. And I, I actually still see him to this day. It was pretty scary to be told first to go see a therapist for the first time in my life at the College Counseling Center, and then to be told, actually, you're too fucked up for this setting, so we want you to go see this other person. And then to have to make those calls myself. I was only 17, so I couldn't even consent to my own treatment. I was I saw him for the first time about a month before I turned 18, and it was pre-HIPAA. Things were a little bit looser, but it was my parents who would have to sign everything. And I hadn't wanted them to know at first that this was happening. And then I thought, they're going to get the bills and they're going to want to know. So I should probably just tell them. And so I did. So I saw this guy for the first time in the very first week of December. And then I just felt crazier and crazier for lack of a, a better term over the next couple of weeks. Starting around Thanksgiving, I had started to feel like things weren't real. And I remember sitting on the train coming home for Thanksgiving and looking down at my hands and thinking, these aren't part of my body. If I cut one off, it wouldn't matter. And then I thought, what the fuck am I thinking? I'm a violinist. Of course it would matter. But it was a really terrifying kind of realization that it's stuff around me doesn't seem real. And then I started to believe that things were going to disappear at some point and that I was going to be left behind, left alone, that I was the only thing that was truly real. And even then I wasn't sure if I was real or not. But what bothered me about this was two things. One, I wanted to make sure that I remembered everything. So that when this happened, at least I would have my memories of it. And the other thing that bothered me was that I wasn't sure whether after everything disappeared, was the void going to be black or was the void going to be white? And it was very frightening 
because in a black void, I figured, well, if it's black, then maybe I have the hope that there might be something there and I just have to keep moving and then maybe I'll stub my toe on something. But a white void, I would know that there was nothing there. So it was like everything would be raptured but you. Yeah. But it wasn't like a, a theological kind of rapture. It was more, there was this force that was controlling the universe. Actually, that's what I called it in my head, the force with a capital F, of course, that was just waiting for the right time to flip the switch or push the button or whatever and make everything disappear. And so I really felt like I was being dicked around by this thing. <laughs> and Because you were. Because I was. And I knew that it sounded crazy, but I also couldn't disabuse myself of that notion that maybe this was going to happen. And if I stopped believing it, then it might actually happen. And then I would be caught unawares and like, that would not be cool. Oh, so it got you, it got your buy-in to continue to believe it. Yeah. As believing it would prevent it in some way. It, a little bit. It was like a cat and mouse sort of thing. I knew this was going to happen. I didn't know when it was going to happen. But if I tried to stay on top of it, then I at least could feel a little bit more control. That's a really, it's like it, it was a game of chicken or... Yeah. Or whatever. And you lose. Yeah. And you lose if you take your eye off the ball. Yeah. A ball which really you don't want to be looking at. Or like the worst staring contest you can possibly imagine (laughs) when you're staring at something just so grotesque. But if you blink, it might become even worse. Oh, God, that sounds awful. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And and the one thing that really kept me grounded in a way was self-harm. And it was fairly minor, but it was still like, I knew what I was doing. I would carry around like a barrette in my pocket so I could grip it really hard if, if I felt the need to like bring myself back from whatever other um, part of my brain I was hiding away in. So the, the pain would bring you back to mm-hmm. you. Yeah. How far did that go for you? What do you mean? How, you said it wasn't severe self-harm. Mm-hmm. You're not obviously covered in scars. At least the you can't can see, see them. Right? You can't see them. I have a few, but they're very faint. Okay. And they're from later, okay. not from college. It, so in the beginning, I swiped some knives from Valentine, the dining hall. Yeah. Butter knives. But I took them in my pocket. Yeah. Yeah. And I kept them in my pocket so that if I needed them, they were there, but I would hold on to the blade. It wasn't, it wouldn't break the skin. There was enough that it could, what? It it would hurt, but not cut. Yeah, I think that most that those things could ever cut would be like the Mapo tofu. But only if it was fresh, because if it was not fresh, it was not even going to cut the tofu. So it was not a very, it was not a very dangerous thing that it was carrying around. But but it was the the principle of the thing. Like, ooh, I'm a badass. I stole a knife from a dining hall. And this is my, my rebellion. I had a couple of barrettes as well that, that I could keep in my pocket and have if I needed that. And did, was there any other source of relief? A couple times I tried to stop talking forever. How'd that work out? Didn't. It really didn't. It never really lasted more than about two hours. And what would the not talking do? I I don't remember, but Mm -hmm. I just thought that maybe it might help. The other thing that I tried to do was to run away. And I'd never, when I was younger, I never tried to run away from home. I had these thoughts that I was going to ride my bike to my best friend's house a mile and a half away and live with her. I, I never did that. There were a couple of times, I think, 
two or three times that December that I just took off and I walked. I was out for a good three or four hours. I thought I was going to walk to the Berkshires, but I didn't have a good sense of geography. And the Berkshires are a little bit more than five miles away, but I was walking in that direction. I went past Hampshire College and then I turned because I got a little disoriented and, and, and I should have kept going straight because I was almost there. And I got freaked out and I went back. Okay. My feet really hurt the next day. And I did it a couple more times and then... How's, how's running away going to help? My, I wanted to just be by myself. And I, I had read this book once when I was in elementary school about some kid who runs away and who learns that you can make a pathetic tomato soup if you mix McDonald's ketchup packets with hot water. And so I thought, I have this information in my arsenal, and I'll make sure to take some Band-Aids, and I'll take my allergy medications with me, and I'll take some laundry detergent and some money, and it'll be okay. My motivation really was to go someplace where I could be completely by myself. One of the things about, like, college in general, and Amherst College in particular, you were not alone. (laughs) No. (laughs) A lot of people, they will come into your room whether you want it or not. They will talk to you about something, and, and it's like... The locked doors did not prevent that from happening because right. someone in the dorm figured out the multi-coat hanger hooky thing to like unlock your door. <laughs> oh, but Jimmy's a neurosurgeon now, so I'm not okay. surprised that he figured it out. <laughs> My friends actually used it to wake me up in the morning because, mm. of course, I had an extremely de- delayed sleep phase yeah. and would not wake up for my 8 a.m. mind-brain behavior. The- it was this freshman seminar. One of the two requirements at Amherst, the freshman right. seminar. Right, I took improvisational thought. Nice. Yeah. Which you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> when did the tipping point happen where running away wasn't going to work and the butter knife wasn't going to work and the barrette wasn't doing it and something needed to happen that was more than that? Interterm. Yeah. No one needed to expect you around? So I turned 18 the day before coming back to campus. And I was like, woohoo, three weeks when I'm going to, I think I was going to take a class on the X-Files, which ended up not happening. During the first week of interterm, there wasn't really that much happening. I think I tried to go to the knitting class and I just really couldn't do it. Um, But I just felt increasingly disconnected um, during that week. And I would steal off to the music building and I, I had somehow acquired the piano score of Tori Amos's Winter. I was gonna to learn to play that. I'm self-taught and I'm very creative with my fingerings, which is to say I hit the notes, but awkwardly. I would go off to the music building, lock myself in a practice room and I would work on this. I think I just had that song. I wasn't really getting anywhere with it. And I felt like if I can't play music, then it's just over. I'm only hanging on to this reality by this tiny little thread, and now that thread is starting to fray because I can't play music. I can hear it, but I don't want to hear it, but I can't play. And Is is this, because I'm having this kind of music in my head flashback thing happening to me now, is it the Tori Amos song where it's, this is not really happening, 
You Bet Your Life It Is? No. <laughs> Who is that? No, there, that's a different Tori Amos song. So the, the fact that I was having Tori Amos play at me yeah. while you were giving this description of not being able to play Tori Amos was at least Tori Amos. It's Tori Amos, yeah. So clearly you were not a, a brooding teenage girl in the 90s. It was not it happening. Was, it wasn't happening. And that was the um, end of the world. And yeah, it really felt like it. And so I went back to... Hold on, I want to rewind you for a second. You just said it really felt like it, but it didn't sound like it really feels like it right now. No, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. No, but that's (laughs) the thing we all do, right? We get in this kind of mode where we're like... and Telling a story. Telling a story. Yeah. But like, you were a a just 18-year-old girl who had just had the thing you do taken away. Yeah. And as I talk about it right now, my hands are like going numb and I don't recall feeling any like physical sensation at the time but the way that I'm feeling it now as I'm talking about it is like I can't feel my hands and I'm like you know I'm a little I'm like close to I get the edge of tears feeling you know and you have that feeling and you know mostly in the work we do you Mm -hmm. you probably try to keep it Keep a lid on it. Sometimes. Yeah. But I'm feeling it. This sounds totally fucking terrifying. Yeah, it was. It and, was terrifying. And how did, how in that moment, like, how did you just hold on to whatever you need to hold on to? The therapy I do most of the time is called mentalization-based treatment. It's totally fantastic, and you should do the training because it will change your life. It okay. changed mine. One of the things they, they talk about in the training, which I think blew my mind, is the concept of pretend mode. Mm. where you can, there's mentalizing is when you're like actually in touch with thoughts and feelings and yeah. talking about those things. One of the ways in which you cannot do that is to, yeah, therapy speak. And it sounds like you're talking about feelings, but there's no actual connection with any internal state. Mm-hmm. And I heard that in what you said. Yeah. And I was curious about it. I've also told the story a number of times. I'm sure you have. Part of what <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to do is to knock you out of that yeah. I've told this story a number of times. Thing. Jerk. I know. Uh, <laughs> okay. You okay. can't fucking okay. play the piano. No, I couldn't play the piano. What I did is I went back to my dorm room. Did anyone else know? Like no. Any, no other classmates, nope. no one at Amherst mm-hmm. College other than the counseling center who you weren't talking to at the time. Right. And whatever psychiatrist you saw once in the community. Yeah. Or something twice. like that. I think I saw him twice. You are surrounded by people, mm-hmm. none of whom know your world is falling apart. And what's that like? I felt very alone, very alone. What would have happened if you had told anybody? I was afraid that they would say I was crazy and not want to hang around with me. And I did tell like maybe one or two people, a little bit, but not much. How did they react? They were very supportive and they... I mean, we'd only known each other for, what, five months? but It's five months. They wanted to make sure I was okay. This one guy who I was friends with actually happened to come over to my dorm room one night while I was packing my book bag and trying to figure out how to fit, when I was going to run away, and trying to figure out how I was going to fit this giant box of Tide in my book bag. And he was like, what are you doing? And I sat with him and told him and cried and he told me he had experienced some depression pretty bad depression I was like but it's not depression there's something else and then he showed up the next day with some mystery science theater tapes for me which was very sweet 
And as a gesture, it was lovely, but it wasn't really what I wanted. And and, and what what would you have wanted? That's the thing I didn't know. Okay. So, so you needed something. You wanted something. I wanted something. It turned out to not be mystery science theater. It wasn't mystery science theater. It wasn't a boyfriend. It wasn't... A box of tie that would fit. But it wasn't being able to play Tori Amos on the piano. Like, I really was grasping at straws. When I discovered that I, I couldn't... Like, I could sit... I could play the notes, but it didn't sound right. Oh. I could muddle through it, but it really sounded... It was the equivalent of when I'd been sitting on the train and, and was looking at my hand and thinking, this isn't my hand. I know intellectually that I'm making these notes by touching the keys and it's hitting the hammer and all that, but it wasn't right. It's like musical derealization. Yeah. I went back to my dorm room and I thought, clearly, this is it. Some Something big is going to happen. And I started writing a manifesto. That's what I thought of it as kind of a Dear John letter to the universe. It wasn't a suicide note. It was more, I'm writing you this letter, you, the, the, the students at Amherst College and my family and the rest of the universe, I'm writing this letter, but you don't exist. So why am I writing this letter? And I actually went through that in this thing that I wrote, everything that I could remember from my high school philosophy course about the nature of the universe and Leibniz and Monads and Descartes and I, I don't even remember what else. But How long did this thing end up being? Uh, about two pages. Two pages. But I write, or at the time, I wrote very small. Handwritten. Yes. Two pages. Two pages. My handwriting is small now, but it was tiny then. And so I could fit a lot on a page. It was probably if I had written it in my normal handwriting, probably been about five or six pages, but I fit a lot in there. So we need a magnifying glass. Yeah, probably, probably. Was there any sense that it was small? I had been told that my handwriting was small, and I had been told, you should really write bigger. It got smaller over the years. I can go back and I can look at my diaries from middle school and high school and then stuff that I wrote toward the end of high school and then beginning of college, and there's a definite like, shrinking. And you still have letters. Oh, yeah. I keep everything. Oh, pack God. rat. It's amazing. I wish I had that stuff. Yeah. So um, So you write the letter to the universe. I, I write this thing, uh, and it started out, um, I wrote, my already off-kilter world is now even more out of alignment. I tried to be really academic about it, and that was a way of protecting myself from what was going on. I never finished it. Where I stopped was with Tori Amos. The, there's a line from one of her songs, Give Me Life, Give Me Pain, Give Me Myself Again, which she repeats, I think, probably seven or eight times in the song. And I wrote it seven or eight times. And then I stopped. And I don't remember why I stopped, but I did. It might have been time to go to dinner. It, what, what strikes me about that description is like both the kind of sheer terror you were going through and the kind of like observation of the collapse of your own mind mm -hmm. and the mundanity of oh but now everyone's going to dinner yeah <laughs> i'm busy right. going insane but they have that like key lime pie tonight so or like go. the chicken with the broccoli and cheese in oh, it God, yeah. yeah so it's all involuting around you and you're trying to walk from step to step and somehow mm -hmm. you get from amherst college to a hospital january 11th 98 sometime in the afternoon who made the call I'm getting there. Okay. There's a story. I'm okay. getting there. Slow Do down. Do it. <laughs> Go for it. 
my friend came over, we were hanging out and he decided to take a nap on my bed. Like you do. Like you do. And I was like, all right, take a nap because I was very practical. I had a bottle of Windex in my room and some paper towels. I thought I should really clean the window. Then that thought almost immediately went out of my head and I thought, I know what I need to do. I need to jump out the window. Remember that big tree? I was right outside. Yeah. Because I was three floors above you, I saw the way down that tree and I thought, this is it. I really should clean the window because the window's dirty. Might as well. No one else is going to do it. So I got up on the sill. I started cleaning the window. They opened from the top and the bottom. I leaned out a little bit. And I had this thought that I could do this now. And then I can come back later and finish my degree when everything's better. And By jumping out the window. And, and did you know you were going to die if you did that? I was pretty sure I was. But I also... But you could come back. Couldn't come back later. Yeah. You're going to jump. I was going to jump. And, and the window was clean. I had to make sure. First. I was leaning out the window and looking down. And there was like no other thought in my mind. Was it physically possible to get out of that window? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you could have. Oh, yeah. I could have. I wasn't all the way up on the sill, but I was on my knees on the sill. But if I'd stood up on the sill, my friend woke up from his nap and he's come down from there. What are you doing? And I didn't answer him and I just stayed there. No, you're scaring me. I'm down. And he came and he took me down from there. I don't really quite remember, but I know that I didn't come down from the sill entirely voluntarily. I wasn't kicking and screaming. And he's like, you are not okay. What's your psychiatrist number? And I told him. And so then he called the girl that he was dating and she came over and we all sat together and we waited for my psychiatrist to call back. It was a Sunday afternoon around five o'clock. And at that time, the way that we would reach him would be to call him at his house. And he doesn't do that anymore. He he called back and he said, okay, we need to get you to the hospital. Oh, hell no, I'm not going to the hospital. And he's, oh no, you are going. And by which I thought he meant Cooley Dickinson. Yeah. (laughs) I sprained my ankle. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I'd been to the Cooley Dickinson ER in the fall because I'd had a couple of panic attacks, which I swore I was like dying of asthma, but it was actually panic. And I was like, you're not sending me to Cooley Dickinson. And he's, no, I'm not. I'm gonna see if I can get you in at Brattleboro Retreat. And I had not heard of this place. How am I gonna get there? And at first my friend was gonna drive me, but then his girlfriend said, no, it's not a good idea. You're too upset. You shouldn't make this drive. And I'm like, but then how am I going to get up there? I don't have a car. So they ended up calling an ambulance. And I rode in that. And another friend rode with me. And then a bunch of my friends just piled into his car and drove up too. Everybody just sat around with me in admissions until three in the morning when I was finally good to go. That, that's a lot of support. I'm really impressed that they did that five or six friends all together. They waited for a long time. And then at one point I wanted a Sprite. And so somebody went out and got a Sprite for me. I really wish everyone's first trip to the hospital could be so uh, chaperoned and held. Yeah. What was going on inside you at that time? Do you have a memory of that? 
Not really. I do remember everybody sitting around with me. I remember somebody going out and getting me the Sprite and drinking it in the elevator on the way up to whatever floor it was. And then having my stuff searched, my bras taken, and my shoelaces removed. And my shampoo and my razors, because I had no context for this. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to bring this stuff. And then I remember waking up at, being woken up at about six in the morning by somebody who was there to take my blood. And I was like, I'm so tired, can you go away? And they're like, no, we have to do this now. And I tried to go back to sleep, but there was a radiator that was clanging in the room and I was pretty sure it was gonna explode. I pulled the blanket up over my head, figuring my head is right next to the radiator. So if the radiator blows, it's gonna burn my face off, but I might as well put a blanket over my head. And the, that, the blanket, was that gonna protect you? Yeah. Yeah. So I've never been to Brattleboro Retreat. It's pretty nice. What, when you say nice, what's nice for a psych hospital? So it's old. It's very old. The grounds are pretty, I think. It was January when I was there and it was snowing. I'm not sure how pretty the grounds really were. The buildings are nice. I think they were stone, maybe. The hallways were very open, which was nice. Had a couple of different roommates. They, they moved me around a lot. I was never really sure why that was, but the staff was polite, except for the one guy who was listening in on my phone conversation with my violin teacher, because there was one payphone that was a little bit more private, and then there was one in the middle of the hall. I happened to be calling her from the one in the middle of the hall, and he overheard me, and he didn't like what I said, and I gave him what for, but... Is this a staff yeah, person? it was a staff person. Yeah. What did he yeah. like about what you said? I think it was that I had brought a mirror with me, so I was wearing contacts at the time, and so I needed to put my contacts in. And I had this mirror, like a little kid mirror, actually. They had taken it because it's contraband, and I was trying to explain this to her. And she was like, why would they do that? And I was like, I don't know. Maybe they think I'm going to break it and hurt myself with it. And so the staff member didn't like, I think that I had caught on, but also <laughs> my tone <laughs> right. about So it. The, the sassiness with yeah. which you expressed that you had figured them out. Yeah. was displeasing. <laughs> it was displeasing to this particular psych tech. I told him that he shouldn't be listening to my private conversations. The food was pretty good. We, we got to go down to, there was a cafeteria that we would go down the stairs and there, I remember in the stairwell, there's like a fence, like chain link, so that even though nobody other than Gumby could fall in between the railings, mm -hmm. they had to block it off. So, right. yeah, which I thought was a little excessive. And this but. is super entertaining, having been on both sides of that, mm -hmm. the locked door, uh, keys or no keys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The food is what people remember. It's not the excellent, thoughtful care of their doctors per se. They might nope. not even know the doctor's name. Nope. No, it's the food because that's your day. That's it's your day. the food. I ate a lot of salads that involved pickles because they had some really good pickles. Huh. Yeah. And Russian dressing. So what do they do for you there? First, they gave me a schedule that had 12-step groups highlighted on it. And I said, I have never so much as smoked a cigarette in my life, so I'm not going to any 12-step groups. Thank you very much. And they're like, oh, actually, we tell everybody that these are when the meetings are. I'm like, you can take it back because I'm not going. That's you're, your point. You're a very good girl at this <laughs> point in time. Very good. Very good. Um, 
I went to groups. There was this behavior therapist whose name was Rick, and he looked like Tiny Tim. <laughs> he had the long, curly hair, and I expected him to have a ukulele. And, and he, so I guess he wasn't really a behavior, he was a cognitive behavior therapist because he introduced himself as the behavior guy, but clearly he wasn't because he also led cognitive therapy groups. And I was a little snot, and I went to this one group where they were talking about cognitive distortions, and I said, well, I don't need anybody to tell me how to think because I can think pretty darn well, thank you. And they're basically like, how's that working out for you? <laughs> and I went to groups. I Did anyone explain people. anything? So they were just as perplexed as I was about what was happening. They sent me for some tests. They sent me for a CT, and they sent me for an EEG. The CT, I had to go to Brattleboro Memorial Hospital for, and it was the first time that I had been outside in over a week and a half. And even then, it was just like going from the hospital to the van, to the other hospital, back to the van, and back to the unit. And there I learned that my ventricles were slightly larger than normal, but otherwise fine, and that I had the appropriate amount of white matter and all of that. I don't remember the CT at all. No memory of it. I do remember the EEG, and that was unpleasant. I don't know if you've ever had one. I don't think I have. Oh, it was. I'm sure you know the process, though. I do. Yeah. So it was all fun and games until they stuck the lead up my nose, and then I started crying. And they were like, okay, we're done. But their theory was, well, maybe I had temporal lobe epilepsy, which I don't. So they successfully ruled that out, and then they were like, we don't know what's going on. Did they explain, like, that you were psychotic or what psychosis might be or why they didn't understand what was wrong? Did they? I already knew what psychosis was. And did I you already... know you were psychotic? Yeah, I did. Okay. And so that, that was another kind of puzzling part of it is that I had insight sometimes, but not all the time. I think I left there with a diagnosis of psychotic disorder not otherwise specified. The classic. Yeah. And I got a copy of my paperwork years later. I thought, I, I want this. I want to see what they wrote. Because also they did psych testing. And so I did a Rorschach. And I did a draw a person. And I did the sentence blanks. And I forget what else I did. But So the Rorschach, mm-hmm. it, it, that's the one where they have you look at ink blots. Right. And, and they say, say, what might this be? Yeah. How, what was your Rorschach like? <laughs> It turns out that I'm an over-incorporator, and an over-incorporator in Rorschach parlance is somebody who looks at the entire blot and tries to fit every single aspect of the blot into their answer. Instead of coming up with multiple different answers, an over-incorporator looks at the whole card and says, this is what this is. And you're a psychologist, so you'll know this better than, what does that mean, that you're an over-incorporator? What's the Uh, significance? That I'm a diehard perfectionist, mostly. Okay. But that I probably overanalyze things. Is that well. right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's I didn't need a Rorschach to tell me that. I could have told them that. But but the Rorschach nailed it. Oh, oh, yeah, it nailed it. But the other thing that it nailed, and I didn't put these pieces together until I was in grad school and learning about the Rorschach, is so when you do the Rorschach, you have to have 14 scorable responses. So there's 10 cards. 
you present the cards twice. And so the first time that the cards are presented, you say, what might this be? And the person takes it and they say what it is. And you record verbatim, you write, you handwrite verbatim what they say. And then once they get through all 10 cards, then you present the first one and you say, now we're going to go through the cards again. And I would like to... I would like to make sure that I'm seeing this as you're seeing this. And so then you read the person's response back to them and you ask them location questions. So where on the card do you see such and what makes it look like that to you? So you're, you get answers about texture and about shading and about color and about shape and those sorts of things. If you have 14 scorable responses, you can then look at the scoring rubric, which is called the comprehensive system. It's this big book that details all of the answers that you are possibly going to get. So there's the ones that are more common and then there's the ones that are just really weird. You should have a balance of ones that are more common and ones that are a little bit unusual. If you have fewer than 14 scorable responses, by the end of the second pass, you present the cards a third time. You try to elicit more because if if you have fewer than 14, you can't score it. Because I'm an over-incorporator, I gave 10. And because I had an excellent memory, when the psychologist gave me the cards again and he started to tell me what I said, I repeated back to him what I had said. <laughs> and <laughs> before Worst he could even say for the psychologist. Oh my God, I was, I'm sure he <sighs> drank that night. And so he ended up at the second pass with only 10 responses. So then he gave them to me again and was really pulling teeth. And I was like, wow, this is a really annoying test. So I probably gave a little bit more so he could actually score. But what I learned later was that when people are psychotic, they either give an overabundance of really weird responses or they give fewer than 14. Mm. I was only seeing one thing per card, but I also couldn't step out of that place for whatever the reason was some of my answers were a little bit weird and i know now because i remember what they were 18 going on 19 years later not bad yeah Ugh, like very so you walk in and today so it's 1998 at this point 98 and so i think lanzapine comes out later that year had already come out. It had. Both Lanzapine and Risperidone had already come out. Yes, 97. Oh, yeah, because Clozapine was 95. Two years later, we had Risperidone. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And before I had... Did they give you any of those things? No. They just gave you clo- held on. They gave me nothing. <laughs> nothing. They gave me my things. allergy medications that I arrived with. and They didn't treat your symptoms at all? No. No, they didn't. Okay. I think that the reason for that was that my psychiatrist had asked them not to and for them to wait until I had been discharged so that he could take it over. Because he and I had actually started having the conversation the month before. And he said, okay, there's these two medications. And there's the Lanzapine and there's Risperidone or Zyprexin, Risperdal, as of course they were known then. And he said, you seem pretty smart. I want you to go do some research and figure out which one you would be willing to take. This was at my second appointment with him, to which I had shown up with a letter in my pocket that I never gave to him that said, thanks, but I don't think you can help me because I'm too crazy. The universe is going to disappear, so bye. So it's not worth it. So how long were you in the hospital for? Two weeks. You're in the hospital for two weeks getting tested up and down. Tested up and down, going to groups. Not treated with any medication treatment. No, Just psychological treatments. Yeah. and Did it help? I think it did in that it interrupted the cycle that I was in of 
just not talking about what was going on for me. And I think that it helped also to keep me safe. That being said, I also managed to freak them all out during checks one time because I think my friends had come to visit and I was upset about something afterwards. And I was like, I'm just going to hide in the closet after they left. And at that point, I had worked my way up the privileges ladder, and I was in the room that was furthest from the nurse's station. And I didn't have a roommate, because my roommate had just been discharged. There was a big closet in the room, so I just went and I sat in there. They came around for checks, and they couldn't find me. And I heard them coming, and I was like, I'm gone. I'm not here. And they found me. I had to do some worksheets. And then they moved me back to right by the nurse's station. (laughs) A robust response. (laughs) It was. I had to do a self-defeating protocol was the name of the worksheet. Because you were intentionally thwarting their treatment. I was. I was. Yes. Because I was a little snot. What what did you feel like being there? Did did any of them get what was going on? Did you have any sense that they, they had anything to offer? To be honest, I felt like a curiosity. And it also felt, a lot of it just felt unreal in that I had just turned 18 and I was the youngest person on this unit. I'd never been exposed to anybody before who had significant mental illness. And there were people who were there because they'd gone off their meds. There were people, there was a, there were a couple of people there who were trying to get off of heroin. And I watched them go through withdrawal. And because I was a good little girl, I had no no concept of what this might be like. I felt, all right, I'm here. I'd really rather be back on campus for interterm. I'd rather be where I can watch the X-Files. I I tried to make the most of it in whatever way that I could, but really I sat down around doing a lot of jigsaw puzzles and doing occupational therapy and, and going to groups and arguing. And didn't jump out a window? No, I didn't jump out a window. Nope. Then it Um, worked, I guess. Yeah, that worked. Yeah, I'm still here. But one thing my friend said to me when I was complaining about still being there after almost two weeks, he's, it's not summer camp. I'm like, yeah, but we have arts and crafts. And he's (laughs) telling you tried to kill yourself. It's not summer camp. That's actually a phrase that I use with my clients even now. They have, if they've been to the hospital or they're on the way to the hospital and they don't know what to expect, I'll be like, and I'll, I'll say it jokingly, it's not summer camp but it's intended to keep you safe. So yeah, when I was there, I felt I'm here. I'll just while away the time until they tell me that I can go home or go back to campus. And there's some negotiating about whether I was gonna be able to go back to school. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm gonna be fine. I'll go to my appointments, I'll go to class. This only happened once, it's gonna be fine. But the reason that I know the day that the Super Bowl was played in 1998 is because that was the day I was discharged and everybody was getting ready for a Super Bowl party. Yeah. Yeah. January 25th, 98. I don't know who played and I don't know who won, but that was the day that it was played. And the X-Files wasn't on because of the Super Bowl. I know, right? So anyway. Like putting that together in your head now, I'm most interested in like, because that was like butting in for a minute as editor Owen this next section like linguistically falls apart uh, and I decided to keep it because one of the things about these atypical psychiatric experiences like having psychotic symptoms that are diagnostically ambiguous is that language falls apart. And so looking back on this interview now and listening back, 
I hear even my language fall apart as I try to ask her what she understands her diagnosis to be. She eventually ends up coming up with an answer, and frankly, I don't think it matters. But the meta-commentary here is that having a psychiatric illness and being able to describe it are not necessarily things that overlap, even if you're a mental health professional with a PhD or MD level of licensure. None of this is easy, not for anybody. You don't diagnostically settle down into, has anyone given you like a... Like at that time? Or now? Now. now. Like now. What makes oh. sense to you now, if anything? Um, anxiety makes sense, actually. But things shifted for me in my mid-20s and then again right after my daughter was born. That's and another are, part of the are you story. The, are you the biological mother? Yes. Of the okay. Yeah. And not that it's, it's tricky when you have same-sex parents. <laughs> the things that I'm just going to share this because I'm so enraged. Uh, I was just being taught at a class by a psychoanalyst about like developmental models and psychoanalytic thought. And like, we don't know how children of gay parents are going to resolve the Oedipal complex. And I said in my head, we don't know because it's not real. It was never real. It was made up and it doesn't fucking matter. And worrying about how pretend things will be pretend resolved is not particularly helpful. There is no Oedipal complex. It was never a thing. And that's why we don't have to worry. And saying that is just the worst bigoted thing I've heard all week. Mm-hmm. God, someone kill me now. Curse you and your earth logic. Oh, God. Yeah. Because you don't, like so many people, you don't fit in that easy diagnostic box, mm-hmm. right? So you had. You believe things that were not true. Mm-hmm. That's psychosis. Yep. We have a number of things that we generally associate as thinking with psychosis. And I'm sure people over time have thrown antipsychotic medications at you. Mm-hmm. And do they do anything useful? Do they work? Yeah, it actually did work. Okay. It really worked. What was, um, what was your experience? Like When I tell people yeah. about this stuff, it's, it's not like a beta blocker. It's like a profound experience to take some of these medications. Mm-hmm. It is. Right after I left Brattleboro, I came back to Amherst. I remember my first reaction was, I can lock the doors in the bathroom stalls? What fresh hell is this? Because I hadn't been able to do that for two weeks. Yeah. And now you could go cut yourself in private if you needed to. I can poop with the door locked. Ugh. That was... <laughs> For the audience, because yeah. they don't know, this is a time at Amherst College when the bathrooms were co-ed. So on the fourth floor, they weren't. Oh, they weren't. You had the single-sex bathrooms. We had single-sex bathrooms. In fact, I think the bathroom on the fourth floor might have been the women's bathroom, and the third floor might have had the men's bathroom. So, and it wasn't like designed to be a co-ed bathroom. It's a bathroom, and everybody is using it. And everyone's using yeah. it. Yeah. And sometimes to like hammer out a beer bong situation. I never observed that, but I'm sure it happened. How is that even possible? It's my second night there. I walk in and somebody has the beer bong going. They probably then ran up to the fourth floor around two in the morning because I do remember people yelling and screaming and banging on doors at two in the morning, totally drunk. So that's probably how that happened. Right. And so you get back. I get back. I go see my psychiatrist and he says, which medication do you want to take? You got your choice. And I said, I don't want to lactate. I don't want to take because I looked up the side effect profiles and lactating was just not on my list of things I wanted to do at 18. And he said, okay, I will write you a prescription for Zyprexa. You go pick it up. And he prescribed, I think it was one and a quarter milligram. So he had to prescribe it as a two and a half milligram pill, which I then had to split. I took my friend with me to the CVS and picked it up. 
I was really freaked out about it because my worry was what if all this stuff about the universe disappearing is real and this causes me not to believe it and then it catches me unaware. That's terrifying. Yeah, and then taking psych medication in general seemed to be terrifying, but in this case, because I knew what it was supposed to do. You're supposed um, to keep take your eye off the ball yeah. and if you don't stare long enough, that's when it happened. You took I it anyway? took it anyway because I was a good girl. How is that? I'm a good Jewish girl. We go to doctors, we take the medication, and then we go back. The doctor (laughs) said. This is what we do. So I did it, and I I took it. And I noticed within about a week that I wanted combos, and I wanted combos something fierce. And they had combos in the vending machine in the campus center. And on the way to... The what? crunchy pretzel snack. Yeah, the crunchy pretzel snack with, with the, the cheese pizza. food. Yeah, it was like cheese, cheese flavored. I can't remember if I got nacho cheese flavor or pizza flavor, but it was whatever was in the vending machine. And I just had this urge. My friend and I were going to go watch X-Files in the TV pit in Moore. And I said, oh, we got to stop by the campus center first. And she's like, why? I'm like, because I need combos. She says, okay, you're weird, but all right. I bought the combos. And I ate them and, oh man, they were really good. And I just started eating and eating. Because this was recorded so long ago as your narrator, we're going to talk about the drug Zyprexa, otherwise known as Olanzapine. This is a medication I took for many years and don't anymore. My treatment has moved on and I'm not sad about that. But I did spend many years taking medications like Olanzapine, which is an atypical antipsychotic which has severe weight gain as a side effect. You go on to hear me discuss some of the many medications I've taken as part of my treatment journey and Jillian's. These medications can have profound effects, and one of those is weight gain. This can lead to metabolic syndrome and early mortality. That means death, even for younger children. This is hard stuff to talk about and harder stuff to take, and I hope this conversation helps reduce the stigma for everybody listening. These medications can be life-saving, and they have real costs and consequences. This, of course, is not designed to replace actual medical advice from a professional about you, your medications, or those for your family, friends. You need to talk to your own doctor about that, and you might need to get one. But don't change your meds based on this. That's not the idea. And you'll notice when you knew me, I was 127 pounds mm-hmm. and now I'm 180 pounds for the same reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have 2.5 as I break upstairs. Thank you very much. It's the so, only thing that's ever worked. Yeah. That, the only thing I noticed from the one and a quarter was that I was just eating mm-hmm. and I didn't really notice any change mentally. And so we went up to two and a half and then we went to five and then... 10. And then my cousin, the psychiatrist, child psychiatrist says, oh, sometimes I find with my adolescent patients that if they take a fraction of the dose in the middle of the day and then the rest of the dose at night, it actually works better than taking it all at night. So I'm like, my, I was like, okay, that's fine. So then I was taking two and a half in the middle of the day and then 10. And I went from about 127 pounds to close to 160, pretty fast. It um, does that. Yeah. And I also couldn't stay awake. And does that too? Yeah. 
And one time I slept through a fire alarm. I think that was senior year I slept through a fire alarm. So you were on Zaysprexa the whole time? Whole time. Whole time. Yeah. Well, what did it do for you? It, it slowed me down a lot. Definitely slowed down my thinking, which was a little bit too fast in, in retrospect. But back then I was like, yeah, I'm just zippy and I can think about all these things at once. Some of them real and some of them not real. But it took that away. I'm not sure that I really experienced any decrease in the hearing music. I probably did. Um, but whether I did or not, it just wasn't, it wasn't as bothersome. Do you still hear it now? Right now at this moment? No. But still in an ongoing way. Yeah. From time to time. Yeah, from time to time. Yeah. And like, who cares? Yeah. So like last night we were in the car and um, all of a sudden I got the juicy fruit gum jingle stuck in my head. And it was pretty loud. So I'm like, I'm just going to sing it. (laughs) (laughs) My wife cracked up. Because at a certain point, the rational response Mm -hmm. to hearing the Juicy Fruit Jingle is to sing it. It's not necessarily to push the Olanzapine to 20 or whatever. Did it provide any relief or did you have any kind of experience with it that was like profound or useful or? So here's the thing. I don't really remember. Mm. It really screwed with my being able to remember stuff. Huh. And so I don't remember much of college. I learned some stuff. Mm -hmm. I graduated with honors. I wrote a thesis. Um, what did you write the thesis in, by the way? What did I write it on? The yeah. Emotional Organization of Autobiographical Memory. That's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Why? <laughs> because you didn't remember anything. Of course, you, of course that's yeah. what you wrote it on, right? Yeah. And it was actually inspired by the fact that I had specific associations between pieces of music and memories. And so that's what I used as my memory cues was unfamiliar music to see if tempo or um, or sort of the valence or the, the mode, like major or minor, had, had anything to do with the memories that people recalled. Did they? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, actually, I have a couple of publications off of it that my advisor wrote and put me on as second authors. Nice. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Who's the advisor, by the way? Shulkind. Okay. And uh, looking back on that now. Through the haze. Of through the haze. Stuff. But that is what, look, as someone who's, I've been on in the past, since, since you've known me. Hey, this is narrator Owen Muir butting in again. You're about to hear about my experience of medication treatment with bipolar disorder. And like many people with my illness, I went through the ringer. I had the benefit of having a psychiatrist who was willing to listen to me and change things around and try new things when my care needed adjustment. One of my major arguments on the frontier psychiatrists is that new neuromodulatory treatments offer more hope for patients that are guided by artificial intelligence and more. I think there's a lot of hope on the horizon. But what you're about to hear is, you know, it's a three-ring circus. This interview is from a long time ago when a lot of those things weren't true yet. And probably does a little for my ADHD, but it's a stupid drug if you ask me for bipolar. But my Mm -hmm. doctors, look, you were stable when you're on it, and let's just do that thing because it worked for 13 years. I've taken Zyprexa. I've taken Abilify, Geodon, Latuda, Seroquel. I've taken Prozac. I've taken Zoloft. I've taken most of the drugs. Mm -hmm. I haven't ever taken Risperdal, interestingly. Mm. 
but because I'm like, fuck it, I'm gonna gain weight in any of them. I already, I'm already Zyprexa works. Like why? Why rock the boat? Why rock the boat? And the reason why rock the boat is you gain a tremendous amount of weight, and it sucks, right. and it sucks to be on that kind of medication that we use to sedate people. In your case, mess with your memory, but enough of you is still remembering to remember that you forgot. Yeah. That you wrote a thesis on it. Yeah. Go in and play whispering in the ear of your psychiatrist. Yeah. At the time. What advice would you give now? And I know you're not an MD, and that's fine. No, I'm not an MD. Because you're an expert in you. Yeah. Um, what would I say? Or even to yourself. I don't know. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and or zero zero in this case. Or yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess high. It'd be like two hundred, two hundred. Yeah, it's fuzzy. Some, yeah, I think that I, I don't think that I would give either him or my past self any particular advice, but I am. And now I'm going to get all misty-eyed, but I'm in this unique position in that I'm still seeing the same person that I saw back then. So four years in college, and then I went off to grad school, and then I came back. So between 01 and 08, I didn't see him because I was elsewhere, uh, but then started to uh, see him again toward the end of my pregnancy when we had moved back to Massachusetts. And so I'm incredibly grateful to him for sticking with it and not being like, I don't know what to do and just throwing sand up. And the ironic thing is now I am the same age, actually I'm a year older than he was when I first started seeing him. And that to me feels incredible. I don't know what other word to put on it. I'm, I've always been really big with numbers and I used to have this still maybe do have this little obsession with the number four, but I've always had a great head for numbers. And when things line up numerically, it's all oh, the heavens open up and, and stuff. And it, it's great. When these coincidences happen, it just, it feels like there's this sort of added dimension or this added something like an aura. Aura is not really the right word, but there's something that feels special about it. It's what I would whisper both to him as well as to my past self is don't give up. Yeah. It, it, was there ever a point where you did? That I gave up? I think there were points when I was close, when I was like, well, this is how things are going to be. Like, I'm just going to be that shit crazy girl for ever. I thought it wasn't going to be possible for me to go to grad school. I thought that I would wind up languishing in some facility someplace. Years later, I found this book on my parents' bookshelf which is basically along the lines of oh, a family member has schizophrenia. And that wasn't the actual title. It was some other title. I don't remember. And I asked her about it. And she said, oh, yeah, we've had that since you're in the hospital the first time because I was there twice. And I'm like, why? And she said, because the doctors told us that we should prepare for the possibility that this was going to happen. I'm like, man, nobody told me that. Like, kind of sucks. And that I was getting at, nobody told you much. Yeah. It sounds like your psychiatrist, who you still see, was willing to be present mm -hmm. and unsure Yeah, throughout everything. Yeah. One of the things that I love about him as well as that drives me crazy about him is that he really wants me to embrace the uncertain. 
And he's great with that. I'm not good with uncertainty, but, but I think that's one of the things that's helped along the way is he's okay with not knowing. I wasn't okay with not knowing, but he has been okay with not knowing. That's a wonderful quality. Yeah. Turns out especially for you. Yeah. <laughs> because nobody knows. Yeah. How, how many times did you land in the hospital? Twice. Twice. So twice inpatient and then twice in partial. Okay. So the second time was during spring break of freshman year. And um, before spring break, March 11th, as a matter of fact, I came home from an appointment with him and just lost it. Decided I was going to kill myself by cutting my wrist with a pair of scissors. And I think I made like three marks that were about a quarter inch in length, but I was pretty sure that I was going to bleed out. Mm-hmm. Somehow I got to Cooley Dickinson where I didn't want to be, but that's where I was. That's where they had a bed. And I was there for six days. And they made us exercise to Edie Brickell in the morning. And it was so annoying. And I refused until the final day. And I was like, all right, I'll just give them what they want and I'll exercise. And they were like, oh, you're doing it. I'm like, it's because I'm leaving today. <laughs> So that's a, it's a very, it's not a typical story, typical thing, right. presentation. Like we have this whole, I, one of the things I like to say to patients, like, so here's the DSM-5 and I have it on the bookshelf so I can point at it. Nice purple mm. book. I'm so glad it's purple. I love purple. Yeah. Amherst purple. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I, I'm not wearing them today, but I rock purple cufflinks on I the regular. I bet you do. They're made of Legos. I'm a child psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> and... So you, you and I are in this very privileged position where we ended up in a place where all that experience we've had, and definitely that you've had, of walking through the world as someone psychotic, suicidal, self-injuring, crazy, mm-hmm. is now yours to draw upon yeah. whenever someone needs that. Yeah. How has how, how that, that helped you? I think it's really, I think it's really a blessing and a curse in a way. There are sometimes that I wish that I didn't have the personal experiences that, that I do carry with me because it would be just so much easier if I could sit with somebody and not have my own stuff be brought up. And yes, I know that my own stuff is going to be brought up at some point, but when somebody is really going through a really intense whether psychotic or not, but when they're at that crisis point, I remember what that felt like. Now, I don't remember crystal clear what that felt like because of the uh, haze of, of medication, but I do remember how frightening it was. And so even- Do you think it's the haze of medication? I'm pretty sure. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure. Because I'm curious about that because definitely medication does stuff to your brain and your memory especially if they're putting on benzos and stuff. But also being crazy yeah. does stuff to your memory. Yeah. The main reason that I blame the medication, there's two reasons. One is that I hated that I gained so much weight. That sucked. And the only time that I've, in my entire life, that I've ever weighed more than that was when I was pregnant. And even then I only exceeded that by two pounds. So I didn't like that. But I... Went off of Zyprexa around the summer of 2002 because that was when it was finally revealed that Eli Lilly had been, whatever it was that they were doing. Systematically covering up the evidence that the medication caused 
colossal, yes. massive, devastating weight gain and metabolic disturbances, yes. some cases leading to diabetes. And since there is diabetes in my family, and it's the the one that doesn't seem to be affected by diet and exercise, like the they call it, like it's officially type two, but it's like the type one and a half sort of mm-hmm. thing. The psychiatrist that I was seeing at the beginning of graduate school had said, all right, we need to get you off this medication right away. Okay, that means I can finally lose this 30 pounds. And she put me on Abilify, which actually worked really well until I decided I didn't want to be on it anymore and we tapered. But the difficulty that I have had with my memory actually extended through a good bit of graduate school and ended, well, then here's where things get difficult because I stopped taking medications about early 2005. And you're on none now. No, I'm on meds now, but I'm not on the same one. Not some of the same ones. I'm not on an antipsychotic now. I have not been since 2005. But what makes it complicated for me to figure out what is that about six months after I went off of the Abilify, I got a concussion. It it had several since. And my memory is not what it used to be. Your career in the NFL I cannot play football ever again. <laughs> so sorry to hear I that. I really want to play roller derby, but no one will let me. Understandably. <laughs> so anyway, I, to get back to your question about whether is it the medication or was it just that I was crazy, I don't know. I don't know. I think I would rather blame something external and say, well, it was this horrible medication that I was on that made me gain all this weight and that made me somnolent and that gave me a tremor. It's easier to blame that than to say that this was something that was internal to me that then took also took with it part of my identity, which was the girl with the steel trap memory. Yeah. And having hit my head several times in the last 10 years, I know now that my memory is not what it was. Of course, as we age, it doesn't get any easier to remember things. Until my mid-20s when I started bonking my head, I really felt that part of my identity go away. Like, I can't remember this stuff anymore. So being the rememberer, yeah. as George Bush might put it, yeah, was also yeah. taken away. Yeah, yeah. So you've had, the, you've had the experience of loss. You've had the experience of yeah, a lot of things. A lot Your of things. clients, and you use the term client, yeah. I notice. Yeah. And you also use the word crazy. Yeah. Only when applied to myself. Only when applied to yourself, yeah. never to anybody else. Well, I'm not going to say that, but I wouldn't. It's only like when I get very frustrated and I'm in supervision, I'll be like, ah, that's crazy, but the gallows humor kind of things. But so, it, it, so why, why? And and more importantly, like, how does your experience inform your choose, choice of the words you use? I don't have any other way. Are, are you talking about crazy or are you talking about client? Because psychologists just say client. We right. say client, even though that's it's, what that's the thing. In that's the, field. the thing, even though it's inaccurate because the client is the entity that is requesting or paying for the service. But we say client in Massachusetts. Our Medicaid system encourages us to use person served, but that's awkward, and we all just say client. Mm-hmm. My wife likes to go with. She's become disillusioned with patient, mm-hmm. despite being a physician. Because patient, the root of which is the one who is passive. Mm -hmm. And that is the antithesis of what she would like for her patients or clients. So she says, the person I'm working with. Mm -hmm. Which is great, but it's a bunch of words and doesn't work all the time. (laughs) So you got to say something. It's better than consumer. I don't like consumer. 
And in patients, okay. There are some settings in which I've used the word patient because that was the organizational culture. But in community mental health, we say client. But when I think of myself going to therapy, I am the patient because I'm going to a doctor and therefore I'm a patient. Does um, your, your MD does psychotherapy with you? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's a keeper. I've actually been seeing my doctor for almost the same amount of time <laughs> with almost the same story. Yeah. I was I enrolled in a research study in 2000 in that summer between junior and senior Junior and senior, yeah. And I ended up a patient of Maria Okendo, who's now the president of the APA. Cool. (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Sorry, Maria, I apologize. You're a great American Psychiatric Association president, but you weren't the best doctor for me. You had the wisdom to refer me to Mike Dolchin, who I've been seeing when I went to med school. I saw someone else up there, but Mm -hmm. when I came back, I saw him. But that experience of that very long relationship, and it's a relationship. Yeah. Really, for both of you. Yeah. And now I'm seeing patients who I'm the first person they've seen for mm-hmm. this thing. Yeah. Or very close to it. Yeah, I have that experience with, I have that experience too with many of my clients that they've never seen anybody or they saw somebody once and they didn't like them. And then they come to me and they stick. I have a patient and first break, pure psychotic mania. A colleague of mine saw her in the ER, and then the guy who was supervising the case decided not to admit her to the hospital to spare her the trauma. I heard this story being told. Can we please get her in for an intake in the bipolar center in which I work at the time? And the secretary was like, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea how far in advance we're scheduled out? No, you can't get her an intake. And I said, yes, I'll stay late. Bring her in tomorrow. And I'm still seeing her. And it's and just like the knowledge that I think both of us have that staying with that person who knows this kind of expanse of your life and who you are and has a baseline to compare things to. Yeah. That matters. It does. In the kind of decisions they feel like they can make. And also everybody that I that I saw in the interim, like when I was in graduate school and when I was living in California for a few years, I just compared them to him. And it's not the same. I mean, the, he is my platonic ideal of a therapist because he's been there since I was 17 and crazy. This has been part one of my interview with Dr. Jillian Waldorf. I'm Dr. Owen Scott Muir, and I write the thefrontierpsychiatrist.substack.com. This podcast is part of that tiny media empire. There's another part coming where we talk about her experience as a mom dealing with intrusive thoughts in a new pregnancy and with a new baby. So stay tuned for that one. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify because we're thrilled that you listened and it'd be better if you told the world that you listened and you loved it. It helps drive discovery and share with your friends. Thanks so much.